Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Um, so as we sort of realized that it was time to rename the podcast because we were really following the science and, um, and wanted to be able to like broaden the scope of what we're talking about. And I think like right in episode 400, where we sort of talked about, you know, why we were sort of moving to the whole view as, as opposed to the paleo view, we talked about the necessity of having a podcast really focused on scientific method. I, what I really want to be able to, to help our audience understand is not just how I look at science and how I, um, you know, combine the the information from different studies to come up with recommendations. Um, but I also want our listeners to be really aware of some of like the common pitfalls, some of the common, like we see these certain things over and over again in the alternative health community that, you know, things like, oh, well, that study was only done in a few people or, oh, well, that study was done in, in animals or in rats or mice or whatever. Um, and we see this, this, um, uh, it, it's a manifestation of bias of dismissing science that doesn't conform to someone's beliefs. Um, but we see it in a way that is, um, it's not just disrespecting science. It's, it's, miscommunicating the value of different types of studies. So one of the things that I really wanted to to do, and I'm really excited that we're going to get to do it this week, is kind of talk about like how different studies work, right? That there's they there's different structures for different types of studies and what um what the sort of weight of evidence is from different types of studies. And so that our our listeners can look at articles from, you know, other, um, you know, health educators, uh, influencers, right. Other people talking about similar topics to what we talk about. Um, you know, I, I want to empower our listeners with, a, a understanding of how science works so that you can, you can have your, your little antennas ready for when you see those types of, um, dismissals of contradictory evidence and, um, or see another really common one that I see is um, these sort of arguments built from science that are cloaked in jargon. And so you'll see these, these you know, it's an article that's supposed to tell you, right, to buy the supplement. Or, I mean, I think our audience is well, well familiar with the, um, the, the, the pseudoscience argument for purchase my thing. Um, but even when it's, you know, we're, I'm going to, this article is going to convince you that well, whatever is, something is bad. Um, when they're so cloaked in jargon, I, I sometimes, I, I'll go, there was um, an article, I, I won't, I won't name the, the uh, person who wrote it because he's not uh, relevant at all anymore. Um, but it was the the argument was basically about electricity being the like thing that caused chronic disease, which is a load of hooey. And um, and I I have a 
PhD in medical biophysics. So, you know, the argument like where electric fields interact with cellular processes is biophysics. Okay, I have a PhD in biophysics. And I started going through this article and I'm like, well, it's, you know, I don't understand what's going on here. And this is my field. <laughs> so um, if it is so cloaked in jargon and complex language that an expert has no idea what you're saying. Like this is super red flag that this is a load of hooey. And if you start looking at references and the references have lots of complex words in the title and you actually go to the abstract and it has nothing to do with what the person's talking about, like those are the types of red flags that I really want our listeners to be able to identify. That's different than saying, you know, I think the, the type of scientific evidence that I draw on when I'm writing an article, it, it's multidisciplinary. It crosses a lot of fields. And my ability to dig into the science in the level of detail that I can and understand the methodology, the types of statistical analyses, the um, limitations of a study, I, you know, I, that is an entire like career's worth of training, right? That's what my PhD was. That's what my experience in medical research was. And, um, and it's not, you know, I've often been trying to figure out how to put together some kind of training for, let's say, health coaches to be able to get into the science and, and really analyze it in that same way. And I've realized that that's not something I can teach in a, you know, a continuing education credit type class. Um, because it is something that takes years. It is a it is a skill that um, is taught in research um, in in sort of science research based PhDs. That is is very challenging to develop without that kind of um, rigorous experience and and training and mentorship. However, um, I don't think it's necessary for everyone to have that skill. Um, what I'm really you know, hoping to be able to to do for our listeners by the end of this episode is give you a broad enough understanding of like what scientific evidence actually is to be able to uh, detect um, bull feces on the internet. <laughs> I liken it to, um, for example, I think we did. Uh, vitamin C as relative to being something that could help with chlorine detox when I was swimming a lot. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Remembering way back to when I was still going to a public gym and swimming. Um, and we talked about it um, as being something that science showed, I think, internally as being um, a helpful thing to focus on, whether you're eating more of it or taking a supplement or whatever. Um and I asked about topical application and you were very clear in saying like the, the science hasn't shown that, but it doesn't hurt to like protect from, from absorption or mm -hmm. maybe it was vice versa. I don't remember, but whatever it was, it was like being able to hear someone say, I don't know, but I can look into that for you or the science isn't clear, but, and you've heard us say this before when I extrapolate and Sarah, you say, I mean, the science doesn't show that, but one could logically put that together. Like, yeah. I feel like yeah. we're, we're very, we try to always be honest and upfront about what we have science to show and what we can as humans 
try to guess from um, a hypothesis, so to speak, of that science, right? But we haven't proven the theory. Um, And so I know we've talked about what some of those terms mean on the show before, but I think in the context of we've been addressing a lot of different topics as we, as you said, expanded to this whole view philosophy, but also as we look beyond just paleo, because as you, as listeners, you may or may not know, Sarah and I both had incredible health improvements from paleo, but then we also did additional things from both those perspectives in terms of lifestyle, supplements, adding nutrient-dense foods back in that we didn't Mm -hmm. have a problem with, or removing additional foods that were technically paleo, but that didn't work for us, for example, tomatoes, right? So um, by by context, that bubble isn't like just a small bubble. And we talk about why that is for our own bio-individuality. And you can't do that. You can't learn that if you aren't able to um, be open to the idea of learning as you go. And to me, that's what science is. For me, this the scientific method is always changing and learning as you have new information and being open to that. And I think if you have this belief, for example, fish oil, we've used this um, (laughs) analogy a bunch of times, right? But like, if you have this concept of, okay, fish oil is great, let's do a lot of it. Oh, wait, it's not great. But I already told people that it was, so I'm going to stick with that. Then people don't benefit. And in our case, we had said fish oils concerning, and then we found even newer science and we're like, okay, here's how it could be beneficial. And here's um, where and how and why the science supports that. And that we suggest, um, you know, a brand that we know to be beneficial for you. And so it's like, does that mean that we were wrong? Does that mean that um, we, we weren't following science? the opposite, right? Like that's what science is, is taking the ongoing upcoming information and research and applying it in a way that helps us continue to evolve ourselves, right? And um, I think it's good for people, like you said, to be able when they are reading something, oftentimes, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Um, I see a source that's linked or shared and I don't check it. Right. Like I'm like, Oh, okay. They have a source listed. But sometimes if I'm reading something that doesn't sit well or doesn't jive with something else I've read or seems groundbreaking in some sort of way, I'm the kind of person, I'm a questioner. We've talked about, um, the, tendencies before. And I'm a questioner, so I want to learn and I want to understand the how and why. And so I, by nature, will a lot of times, more than most people probably, go to that source and at least read like a summary or an abstract. And sometimes I'm like, what? Like this isn't even like relative to what I just read. And that I think is like the most important skill that we can all have is no, we're not going to have Sarah's PhD, but we're all perfectly capable of like seeing a sentence and then seeing a source and being like, huh, I am curious how they came to that conclusion. Let me go check this source document that they claim supports this thing that they just said. And you might be surprised at what you find on the other side. It might be amazing and blow your mind and give you even more information that you're like, wow, they didn't, they missed like the coolest part of this. The the point was blah, blah, blah. Or you might be like, this is like not even talking about what they just referenced. (laughs) So I think it's, um, 
important for us to share how and why um, we kind of come to those conclusions and um, that listeners, you hold us to that standard, right? Like we, we want to always be that for you. Like we call this the show, um, the modern science and real life approach to health because science is the basis of everything that we try to share about. We always, both of us, um, except when I talk about the moon, (laughs) ground ourselves (laughs) in science. And I, I stand by the fact that we will eventually find that the moon is responsible for more things than science currently knows. There's currently no science to support that. Exactly. Currently. Um, Currently. Um, Well, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that I think is really important to understand about science in general is that it is a process. It is not static and it's iterative. And so what we're doing in the academic community is we are using the scientific method to expand human knowledge, but it's not a straight line. And I think it's really helpful as we get into this conversation, because a lot of what we talk about on this show comes from the field of nutritional sciences. And nutritional sciences is such an incredibly young scientific field compared to physics or astronomy or chemistry or biology. And because of that, we're, we're in this sort of like renaissance in terms of our expansion of of our understanding, but it also means, it means a couple of things. It means that the new science is, um, there's a huge volume of it and it's, um, our, our understanding is expanding very, very rapidly. It's, it's next to impossible to stay current unless that's all you do. And the only way to really stay current is to, um, carve out time. Like I have time blocked off every single week just to like peruse what's new in PubMed. Um, and sometimes that's just right. It's like reading titles. And then, um, when something grabs my eye, Oh, that seems like an interesting add to this, go check the abstract. And then if that really grabs my eye, go read the paper. But it's, it's really challenging to, for one person to stay on top of, all of the research that's being done. So our our understanding is expanding dramatically. And we're also at a point where there's big holes in our basic knowledge of nutritional sciences. So I'll give you some examples. So a uh, ancient astronomer, uh, Erastathenes, estimated Earth's circumference in 240 BC. Like... 2,260 years ago, uh, was he used shadows in different cities and shadow measured shadow lengths and was able to like, we understand now the earth is a sphere and we measure its circumference. It is, that is, uh, physics and astronomy together. Uh, Copernicus proved that, um, the earth was not the center of the solar system, but actually the sun was in 1543, Sir Isaac Newton published his theory of gravity in 1687. De Lavoisier described uh, the chemical elements, so the periodic table of elements, in 1787. Um, Hopkins identified the first vitamin. It was called factor A. We now call it vitamin A. In 1912, vitamins were discovered just over 100 years ago. So compared to 
the first measurements of Earth's circumference were over 2,000 years ago. So it's it's just when you when you put it in a context of just how much a head start something like physics or astronomy, um, biology, chemistry have on nutritional sciences, it it makes it sort of like then you can go okay, like this has really only been its own field of research for a little over a century, and so because we're in this sort of, it's, it's a really new field. There's still, I mean, the most recent vitamin to be identified was only identified in the nineties. Um, so I, like I was in high school, so it's, um, it's, it's really important to understand that because of where we are in this field, we're not iterating on the theory of gravity in the same way that we're iterating on nutritional sciences. That's not to say that there's not new things. Gravitational waves were really, really cool, right? Those were predicted by Einstein and only discovered a couple of years ago, right? So there's, it's not that physics or chemistry or astronomy as old sciences are static either. It's just that we're in this phase with nutritional sciences where we're still trying to lay the groundwork. And a lot of our initial uh, sort of experiments were about identifying nutrients. They were first very macronutrient focused. Um, so just understanding protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Um, then, you know, it was expanded to understanding minerals and then expanded to understanding vitamins. And it's only been the last couple of years where say we've gotten into understanding how those things influence the gut microbiome and how the gut microbiome influences health. I mean, the gut microbiome uh, wasn't even recognized to be a thing until the early nineties. Um, again, it was high school. Um, so I think, you know, understanding that we're, we're in this phase of the research that is kind of akin to, you know, how, uh, it was, you know, Copernicus was seen as a heretic for, you know, even suggesting that the earth was not the center of the solar system, right? So we're, we're in this, this period of time in this field of research where things can change dramatically due to changes in science. And it's a lot more complex than the olden days because this is a field of research that is also influenced by the food, agricultural, and drug industries through lobbyists. So if you look at, for example, um, the I highly recommend the book Death by Food Pyramid by Denise Minger, and it's a history of the development of the, of the food pyramid. If you look at how that happened, there was a, um, uh, a group of scientists who were, you know, created this commission that they're going to look at all of the nutritional sciences and come up with recommendations and it would be framed as a pyramid. And what they created after years of going into through all the science was a pyramid where fruits and vegetables were at the bottom. Um, and then, you know, protein sources, olive oil was like super highlighted as being super beneficial and grains were put in the top of the pyramid with junk food. And then lobbyists and politicians got their hands on it and went, uh, the, uh, what they actually told the scientists was, well, people can't aff afford all those fruits and vegetables, so we'll put grains at the bottom. That was what they were told. Um, and so we're, we're also talking about a, uh, an industry where there's a lot of influence that is not rooted in the science, that's rooted in profit. And we're also talking about uh, a, a field of science where um, a lot of the people who are 
communicators of this field of science. I mean, I'm, I'm one of them, right? That's what I do is I communicate about nutritional sciences and like where that, you know, sort of overflows into other like health sciences in general. Um, but there's, uh, there's a lot of bias and I, I will admit that I have bias. Uh, when I do presentations, my first couple of slides are, um, you know, my, my bio slides, right? It's my credentials. And I always talk about my bias because I think it's really important to understand that, um, communicators have bias and knowing what their bias is helps you to, uh, hear their information more objectively. And my bias is that I struggled with my health starting in my teen years, all the way through my 20s and early 30s. I've went paleo and I was able to go off six prescription medications in two weeks, right? Paleo was like this miraculous thing in my life that made, uh, you know, health issues that I'd been dealing with um, for 15 years go away. One of the medications I had been on for 12 years and I was able to go off of it that quickly. Um, and so it was an experience that, um, that I didn't expect. And it was an experience that really taught me the importance of diet beyond weight, right. Um, beyond, you know, thinking about food as, uh, something that's delicious to eat. And if I eat too much, I'm going to be overweight. And if I, if I eat less than I'll lose weight, right. That's some really simplistic idea of food. And it started me on this path. I work really, really hard to separate in my educational resources. What is my personal experience versus what the science explains. And that doesn't mean that I'm perfect at this. Um, you know, there is a high volume of information to understand and there, you know, there's science is not uniform. So that is the other thing that's really important to understand is that as scientists are performing science, we're adding to our collective understanding. It's not until the, the body of evidence is so vast that we can reach scientific consensus where most scientists agree in this particular explanation of all of this data. Um, it's not until we reach that level where you start to see um, communications that sort of asymptote towards, towards one linear story. And we're not there yet with nutritional sciences. Um, it is absolutely possible to read, you know, I can read 20 papers and uh, a different you know, expert can read the same 20 papers. And we might, at this point, because of this such a young science, we might not come to the same conclusions. And that's just because we're at this point where we need more evidence. And our biases, um, as much as we try to be objective, our biases do influence our interpretations of the literature. So my bias coming into this is that diet completely changed the trajectory of my life. It, it, um, it made symptoms that I had been struggling with for years and years and years, like completely disappear. And I, I became convinced. Um, and I think the science supports this mostly. Um, but I became convinced that diet is at least a key to lifelong health and that the way we're thinking about food as a society is not right. Um, 
I think lifestyle is also very, very important. I think functional medicine is very, very important. Um, so I, I don't think it's just food. Um, but early on I did early on, I was convinced, um, that, that, you know, we just all need to change the way we're eating and we're going to make chronic illness a thing of the past. I would definitely not simplify. Um, I would not simplify it to that degree anymore. I think that's fair. I think, um, while we have bias, what we all science tries to do is use that to develop kind of the basis of a theory or the basis of a hypothesis. Hypothesis. Yes. Um, let's be careful with those two words. Exactly. And I, I find that's so funny that I like mix those up because I find that people often get those confused and mix them up. And I'm the mm -hmm. one being like, no, <laughs> like, because I, I honestly think that when they created those words, they didn't do themselves any favors in terms of like how they named things. Um, but maybe we could kind of walk through that a little bit, because I think what your bias can enable you to do is to see, for example, that nutrition has an impact and you use that to ask a question to form a hypothesis, but then the science has to, has to prove itself, right? Like you can't yes. cherry pick data like in the, in the China study, right? So, <laughs> right. So as um, we're, as we're mentioning, Denise Minger, <laughs> throw yes. another one out there. Um, Denise Minger, uh, her, her, she came to, to fame by challenging, uh, T. Colin Campbell and writing like a 60,000 word, like scathing takedown of the China study. Um, again, death by food pyramid. I, I highly recommend it. Um, and it's a very engaging read. Like it's, it's a history of, of, um, nutritional recommendations over the last century or so. Um, and it's just fascinating. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's a really important point, Stacey, is that what scientists try to do in general, we try to be aware of our biases and we try to devise experiments so that our biases have no opportunity to affect the results of the experiment. Um, so that can be done by having some kind of super quantitative measurement. So a device that measures, right. And then you get a number, um, it can be done through blinding. So I'm going to make it so that I don't know what I'm actually measuring. It's just sample 14. And then at the end, I'm going to compare it to my sheet that tells me what sample 14 is. And then when I'm doing my statistical analysis, I can see what the results are. Um, science is often conducted in, um, in teams, in research groups, where different members of that group are going to have different responsibilities in in an experiment, it, you often don't find a scientific paper. A scientific paper often has multiple experiments in it. Um, so you might also find different ways of measuring something. So you might, um, if you were doing a biology experiment, you might measure the protein expression, but also the RNA expression to show that your whatever treatment made that protein increase. Um, so you're going to, you're going to measure that in two ways where you're going to measure the increase in RNA as well as the increase in protein. Um, and then you might also do some other kind of measurement where you're, uh, doing cell staining, right? So you're, you're combining different ways of measuring because that way there's less opportunity for bias and you're looking for as many 
quantitative measurements as possible as opposed to qualitative or semi-quantitative. So quantitative meaning I can assign that that thing has a number, qualitative, that thing has a quality, right? It has a from one to 10, how do you feel today? That's actually semi-quantitative. So how do you feel today? I feel um, excited. Um, okay, so that is a word, that is a quality. Um, from one to 10, how excited do you feel? Seven. Okay, now that's semi-quantitative. But if your feelings were something that I could, you know, like a temperature and I can stick a thermometer under your tongue and measure your temperature, that is a quantitative measurement. And so in science, we look for as many quantitative measurements as possible. And as many ways, when we're talking about semi-quantitative or qualitative measurements, we look for as many ways to, uh, you know, blind or control. Um, controls are always really important in how you devise a control. Often you'll have experiments that have multiple types of controls. Um, those are all ways that we can formulate an experiment so that the the bias cannot influence the data that is being collected. And then that data is uh, analyzed. And then when you draw the conclusions based on that data, that's where bias comes back in. But it comes in the form of, um, you know, I this this was my hypothesis. This is what I expected to happen. And now do I see, yes, my hypothesis was correct. Awesome. I'm going to write that up and send it to a journal for peer review oh, wait, my data does not support this hypothesis. Now I have to try to think of an alternate explanation for this data. I revise my hypothesis and I add experiments now to test my revised hypothesis. Cool. Now I have an even more, I mean, that's like a scientist like gets so excited when they have, um, like, when your data does not fit your hypothesis, but it shows something. Null data is not very exciting. Like data that shows nothing's happening, you're like, wah, wah, I guess I was wrong. But data that shows something else is happening, that's really exciting. And so then we write that up. And you know, null data is still worthwhile publishing. You do see papers out there like something, something does not affect something else. That's still really important information. Um, just as a scientist, what you want to see is like, this cool thing happening. And so the scientific method is, you know, you, you make observations, you collect information, you ask a question, right? So you, you, you basically are interested in looking at something that nobody's looked at before. You look at the scientific literature around that question and use it to formulate what would be an educated hypothesis. So I can look at everything else we know about the system and I think this is what's going to happen. You design an experiment um, that will help to answer that hypothesis. You conduct the experiment in as objective a way as possible. You analyze the results, you draw conclusions, and then you report your findings. And then the often when you get to that piece of I am, you know, I'm ready to, to send this to a journal, then you go through peer review. And peer review, uh, what typically happens is uh, a scientific article is typically reviewed by three experts in the field. I've done peer review for various journals in the past. Um, and actually, I, I still on occasion, um, still do. Um, I did one just last year, um, late last year, so about a year ago was the last time that I, I got the, the, the joy of peer reviewing. I did not like, did not like the paper. So I, I, I ripped it, I ripped it apart. Um, but, uh, but what you do as an expert in the field 
is you know, bring everything you know to looking at this um, this paper. You read through it incredibly carefully, and you try to identify any uh, methodological flaw, any alternate interpretation for the data. Um, you try to to basically, you might say, this is really cool, but here's the experiment that would really like make the case even stronger. So you might send it back to the scientists and say, um, there's, there's basically three ways that you can, you can, uh, send it back. You can say accepted as is. So this paper's great, maybe has a few minor edits for, for clarity or whatever, but awesome job accepted with, uh, revisions and they can be minor revisions or major revisions. So a major revision is go do this extra experiment. Um, a minor revision is like, uh, change the axis on this graph so that it look, you know, pr it's presented slightly differently, but you don't have to go do an experiment or you can reject the paper. Um, and that's done by three different experts in the field who are not, they don't know who you like, it's all blinded. So the person doesn't know who's reviewing. Um, the reviewers don't know each other, just the editor of the scientific journal knows. And then the editor of the scientific journal also makes um, a, you know, also goes through the paper and also um, will make a, a judgment on the quality of the paper. And when it basically passes three experts in the field and the editor, then it gets published. And so this peer review process is really important because it's the opportunity for somebody who is an expert in the area to look at the study with fresh eyes and identify um, any like weakness in the paper. Um, and, um, and so that's a really important piece. And it's because of peer review that there is such a small fraction of papers that ever get retracted. Um, so about less than one in a thousand papers ever get retracted. And they're often retracted because of the discovery of a mistake. Um, it, it's not actually um, often, you know, attractions are very, very rarely due to something like fraud. That does happen, um, but it's, it's incredibly unusual. And I think it's unusual because... Um, scientists who are working on this type of research, and I can, you know, speak from personal experience because I was um, immersed in this and my husband is a scientific researcher, so I'm still at, at least tangentially immersed uh, on a daily basis in, in science. Um, scientists in general are drawn to research as a career. Uh, it, it's not a very high paying career, especially for the amount of school and education that you have to get <laughs> before you get there. Um, so they're not doing this for the money. They're doing it because it's just so fulfilling to expand human knowledge. And so scientists are in this to understand the truth. Um, it's very unusual for a scientist to be able to benefit financially from a particular result. Um, so even if, say, the research was going to be um, a, a development of a drug that was going to sell, um, what would happen is a small company would be formed. The university would help for uh, help write a patent. So the university would have a patent office that would help write the patent for the drug. Um, a small company would be formed, and um, the researchers generally get a very very small piece of anything. Um, it it ends up sort of being um, you end up bringing in all this extra expertise in order to again it's it's a layer of um, protection against bias. Um, and it ends up, you know, you, you don't hear about like scientific researchers at 
some, you know, academic institute somewhere suddenly becoming rich because they they found a drug. Like that's that's not how it works. The the cut that the researcher would end up getting at the very very end is minute. Um, and if they really wanted to make it rich, they would leave the Institute and go work for a drug company. Like it, there's a different path for that. Um, and it's still a path that involves peer review and other people looking at the data. And then now you're going through, um, FDA approval and, and it's a different path, um, of research compared to what most of the research, the research that I draw on is not drug development research. It is this basic science where, the, the person who's performing this research is just interested in expanding human knowledge. And that's why we see so few um, examples of fraud or um, bias to the point of, you know, needing to retract a paper because of some kind of, um, you know, uh, China study type or, um, uh, Ansel Keys, right? I'm just gonna, I'm, I've got 20 data points, but if I look at just these seven, look, I'm gonna say that fat is terrible if I just look at seven out of my 20 data points. But if I look at all 20, obviously I'm gonna come up with a different, a different interpretation, right? So there, those types of examples, they become famous, um, right? So the very first, uh, the person who suggested, a uh, researcher in England, um, to suggest that um, vaccines caused autism. That paper was retracted. It was fraudulent. Um, those examples become famous because they're so unusual and because scientists as a whole get very upset at anything that erodes the integrity of the field because um, because the the average scientist, you know, just working away in a lab somewhere, you know, these experiments sometimes take a year or two years to perform. Um, and so it's a huge commitment to one little iterative, ex, you know, expansion of our understanding and, um, anything that erodes the trust in science is something that a scientist finds unacceptable. I'm not a scientist, but I also find it unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fair. okay. So I guess the question I would have is, for those of us who are not scientists, what what do we need to look for? For example, you mentioned like drug companies versus the scientists who created like one of the things that I try to be aware of is like who paid for a study, for example, mm -hmm. are like, how do we look for those things? Like, how do we become more aware of them? So, um, so all scientific papers require a disclosure of competing interests. So that is a disclosure of funding, um, as well as any potential affiliation, um, that could introduce bias into the, the study. And so there's always a, a statement, usually towards the end, right before the citations in a study, of, you know, and it'll be like, this was funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, or this was funded by blah, 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 pharmaceutical industry. Um, and so that's always an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and the affiliations of the authors, um, you know, are these authors who are affiliated with academic institutions, or are they affiliated with the like private lab, private research lab of like a big food company, right? So that's also something to look for. Um, and then 
Um, you also like just because a, a paper was paid for by a drug company or um, or maybe the authors. I mean, I had a um, in my first postdoctoral research fellowship, I had an uh, an award that paid my salary from Pfizer. Pfizer had nothing to do with my research, but I had to put, you know, that I was paid by Pfizer in all of my disclosures for all of the papers that I published over those three ish, two and a half years, I guess, in that position. And, um, and so just because there is a financial disclosure that's linked to industry does not mean that the research is biased. Um, it's, uh, so the peer review process is still the the main thing that is supposed to detect bias. Um, but it's always, so that's one thing to always look for though. So it is, it is there and it is something to keep in mind as, as going through research. I think the thing that's really the most important rather than looking at, uh, an individual study or the quality of one study or whether or not, you know, this was industry funded or drug company funded, um, or, you know, a study that was seems awfully suspicious to say that high fructose corn syrup doesn't cause all these things, uh, you know, from this like Coke paid for, or I'm not, I don't know if it's Coke, uh, some other, let's pretend I didn't say Coke, uh, some soda companies um, research um, is, is the body of scientific literature as a whole. So this is where the word theory and hypothesis are really different. And also the, the, the word scientific consensus is really important. So um, I think there's a tendency uh, in uh, alternative health communities to look at a body of scientific literature. Let's say there's 10 papers and let's say nine papers all kind of show sort of a similar thing. And one paper shows something different. Now, that one paper is not necessarily wrong. They didn't necessarily have a flaw in their methodology. They didn't necessarily have bias. It shows that the system's complex and that if you change your um, variables in some way that you might get a different result. There's something really interesting about that one paper that shows something different. Um, it, a scientist looks at that and goes, there's something interesting. But a lot of the interpretation that we get is either, well, this one paper is the truth because conspiracy theory, blah, 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 blah. So we see a lot of that where we overemphasize the minority of papers that show something different. Um, or you get a dismissal, right? Well, that one paper, because it shows something different, it must be wrong. And those, neither one of those are the right way to look at it. What's important to look at when you're looking at these 10 papers is what's, what is the consensus? What is the majority of the data pointing to? And that's where you have, let's say now you've got these 10 papers. Now you have 10 scientists each read all 10 papers. You're probably going to have 10 out of 10 or nine out of 10 of those scientists come to the same conclusion. And that's what's called scientific consensus. When there's enough data that um, the vast, vast majority of experts looking at that data come to the same conclusion based on that data. So for example, with climate change, 97% of uh, climate researchers believe that climate change is being, uh, or interpret the data. I'm not going to use the word believe because this is not something that's, uh, it's not a belief based, it's data based. 97% uh, of the researchers looking at the data 
interpret that data as uh, climate change is being uh, driven uh, increasing, like there is a natural swing of our climates on Earth, but that the climate change we're experiencing now is increasing rapidly because of human activity. And so that is scientific consensus. That is the vast majority of scientists look at that research and go, yeah, like, oh, humans, we got to change something because uh, the climate. Um, and so that's what scientific consensus is. It doesn't mean that every single study ever done uh supports that consensus view. It doesn't mean that every scientist looking at the body of scientific literature comes to the same conclusion. It means the vast, vast majority of the data points in that uh, aligns with that explanation um, and that the vast majority of experts looking at the data agree. And so that is when you start to move from what would be a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a possible explanation or a preliminary conclusion or an educated guess. A theory is when the evidence builds up so much so that, um, that you have this scientific consensus and that you can start to predict um, based on the theorem. So for example, the theory of gravity. I can predict that if I hold my delicious cup of tea over the floor and I open up my hand, that it's gonna fall to the ground. And I can predict that with extremely high accuracy because gravity is a very consistent thing. Um, so that's a, you know, a really extreme example of something that has gone from right, a body of scientific um, uh, literature to now this great understanding and now we have the theory of gravity but that also still doesn't mean that gravity, again, is static, right? So for example, we just measured gravitational waves for the first time uh, in 2016. So, um, so it's do it doesn't mean that we're done researching, but it just means that we now have so much evidence um, that we have a consensus explanation for that evidence. Um, and I'm, there's probably gravity deniers out there. It just really concerns me. That, I mean, because I don't know, but as soon as you said that, my my brain went to like. Oh. It's okay. It was it was a joke. It was it was. I, but it's. <laughs> it's too real. It's too real. It's too real. It's it's too real. Fair. Um, so um, one of the things that I I sort of want to explain in in this having I think we've kind of like here's the scientific method and here's how science works. I wanna talk about the different types of studies and how they're designed and sort of like what they can tell us. Um, this is something that I uh, include in, in presentations um, when I have the opportunity to do like a lengthy type workshop. Um, and it's something that's a little bit easier to explain with visual aids. So I'm gonna try my best on the podcast. Um, but what we could, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go from the lowest strength of evidence to the highest strength of evidence. So where we go from almost like just collecting observations um, at that very beginning of of forming a hypothesis, of asking a question, all the way to consensus, and where we have now enough body of scientific evidence, um, maybe not to have a theorem, but to have a um, a explanation for at least this one question. Um, so we're going to start all the way at the lowest strength of evidence, which is 
anecdotes, which uh, abound on the internet, and expert opinions. And I definitely want to use air quotes there, but I'm not sure whether or not to use it around expert or opinions. But this is this is basically I I'm looking around and I'm not necessarily measuring anything. This is my personal experience. Uh, it's not necessarily representative. Um, this is what what we might call a hand wavy type explanation. Um, and it it's not meaningless, but it, what it is is it is it should be viewed as um, the indication that there might be something interesting to explore there. There is nothing about an anecdote or an expert opinion that is proof. Um, it is really the formulation of the initial question. From there, um, we can get into studies that start to um, solidify the question, solidify the, um, the, the, the need to answer this question, and then, and then answer it, and then expand on our understanding of that answer. So the next level is uh, either case studies or case series. These are purely observational studies, um, and they're basically, right, a case study is written, it's usually one person, uh, so something that happened to one person, um, and a case series is a group, right? So, so two or more, um, they are um, basically tracking one or more subjects, um, and they're, they really are about... Um, again, it's like, it's a, it's an anecdote with measurements is what it is, right? An anecdote with, and we've got medical charts. Um, we followed this person. And so we actually have a scientific description of what's going on here. Um, they cannot prove causation, only correlation, but what they help to tell us is there's some, there's an interesting question here. And so they still, these are types of studies that still have value. Um, maybe they tell us there's something of concern here. So for example, um, our listeners know that for most applications, I do not support a ketogenic diet. The initial studies that um, showed that there was uh, potential for adverse effects of a ketogenic diet, especially over the long term, those were case series. Um, and it wasn't until sort of like the 90s where you started to get these good randomized controlled trials where adverse events were reported, where you could start to say, oh, look, this many percent of people had this, you know, horrible thing happen. And this many percent of people had this, you know, not great thing happen, but maybe not horrible, right? So it wasn't until we started to collect that type of data that we were able to say, oh, look, there's this, you know, uh, there's, there's this, uh, cost to, to pay for the therapeutic potential, even in those situations where ketogenic diet is, is, has therapeutic value. Uh, again, we can reference back. We've talked about this on the podcast before. So, um, listeners who aren't familiar with, with my, um, anti-keto for most situations uh, stance. We can put links to a couple of um, really extensively cited articles that I've written on my website, as well as our couple of podcasts where we've talked about this before. Um, from that, the next, the next uh, improvement in terms of uh, strength of evidence is case control studies. So these are retrospective, which means looking back. 
Um, but you actually would have two groups of studies. So you'd say like one group of people with a particular condition or symptom and then one group without. And then you would look back to determine some kind of attribution or exposure that might have caused it. So you might take these groups, right? This group of people have type 2 diabetes. This group of people don't. Now I'm going to look at their diet and see if I can identify you know, dietary differences between these two groups. So I'm going to look at whether or not they smoke and I'm going to determine, oh, look, uh, a, a way higher percentage of the people in this diabetic group smoke compared to the non-diabetic group. Um, so it's about trying to, to tease out, these are epidemiological type studies. We're trying to tease out, again, a correlation. Um, so it's, it's very challenging in these studies to prove causation. Um, it, it really, you know, it takes a, a large amount. The more you know about your populations, the higher the strength of the evidence, but it's still not, that's still not the end. So from there, we can go to prospective studies. They're called cohort studies. So that's where you take a group of people um, and then you follow them over time. So instead of taking my diabetic people and my non-diabetic people and then trying to look back and see what was what's different about their diet or lifestyle or environmental exposures, I'm going to take a whole pile of people and I'm going to see which ones develop diabetes. Um, these are much stronger studies because you can um, generally follow, you're following people over time. Um, and noting any difference. And so there's much less ability to have what's called selection bias. So it's where um, the way that you've determined what your control group is and what your um, treatment or symptom or condition group is, um, in determining those those what those groups are in a, a case control study where you're looking back, can influence your interpretation of the data. Whereas with a cohort study and you're watching people over time, right? You've got your group of people who smoke and your non-smokers, and you're going to follow them over time and see how many develop diabetes. That's a lot uh, more of a sort of rigorous data set because your, um, your population started out looking the same with this one difference, right? So you get, you have a lot less um, challenge with selection bias. Selection bias basically refers to a difference being how you chose, you know, how you selected your people rather than a true difference in the population. Um, but it's, it can be really challenging still, you know, even with cohort studies, um, you know, things can, um, Things can look like causation because there's such a strong correlation that that really aren't. And that's where mechanistic studies come into play. I put a huge, huge, huge high value on mechanistic studies. So these are most um, animal studies and cell culture studies. Um, there, there's other types, right? Like uh, tissue biopsy type studies would fall under this as well. Um, but these are studies where you're trying to explain how something is linked. So as opposed to, you know, case control studies and cohort studies are about figuring out what is linked. Oh, look, smoking is linked to diabetes. And we can see this both when we look back and when we look forward. But now the answer is why, how, how does that work? And so that's what mechanistic studies are designed to do. They're designed to answer the, the what's the biochemical pathway 
What is uh, the cell biology that's happening here? What, why is it that smoking might increase risk of diabetes? What is actually happening? And that's the mechanistic studies that prove causation. And so um, you'll often find in my writing that I try to start with epidemiology, right? We see that, um, you know, people who smoke tend to develop diabetes. I'll go into the mechanistic studies. You know, we see from here's this animal study that showed this change in, uh, you know, RNA that related to insulin, you know, resistance or, or whatever it is. And then I tend to bring it back to the next type of study, which are called randomized control trials. So this is, you know, the, what's considered the gold standard. Um, so in this case, it's also perspective, but you take a group of people and instead of saying, oh, okay, I've got my two groups, these guys smoke and these guys don't, you, uh, you randomly assign people to a group and one group is going to receive some kind of treatment and one group isn't. So in this case, if I, I would make sure that my two groups had uh, an equal amount of smokers and non-smokers in them, right? You want to make sure that your groups are as homogenous as possible. So the groups look as close as possible. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to tell my treatment group uh, to eat salad every day for dinner. And then I'm going to follow them and see if even with this group having the same number of smokers, if eating salad every day for dinner reduced their risk of type 2 diabetes. And so what I can do is then from that, there's a lot of ways that randomized control trials or R RCTs um, can, um, a, can basically control for different types of bias. So there's different ways of developing these depending on what you're doing. So there's crossover trials where half of the group is a uh, control and the other half of the group is treatment. And then after a period of time, you switch them. And so they, the, you know, treatment group becomes control group, control group becomes treatment group. And you see if the same effect happens in both directions. Um, those are a really great way. Crossover trials are a really great way to, if you're going to look at a lot of the gut microbiome research that I look at in humans are done in crossover trials. So it's like, okay, we're taking this two group of people, uh, we're going to feed, um, the treatment is drinking this smoothie full of whatever plant extracts, um, every morning versus a control. They don't know. Um, so versus a placebo, they don't know that it's not the same. And then I'm going to take my, my samples and analyze the microbiomes. They're going to have a washout period where they're just eating normal and then we're going to switch them. And so I'm going to see if when they're on this smoothie, if their microbiomes look better than when they're not. Um, each person being their own control. And when you have a placebo like that, that's called a blind trial. So where the participant does not know what group they're in. Um, and that's really important because of the placebo effect. Because if you think you're being treated, your body manifests that. We've talked about placebo on the show before, where it's a real effect. It's not in your head. It's a real biological effect where if, if you, um, it's basically again, it's manifested. So my belief is that this smoothie is, um, doing great things for me. It really will do something. Um, it's just, is that something as great as the real smoothie? So that's blind. Double blind is where both the participant and the experimenter does not know what group you're in. So I am giving you 
this uh, smoothie in a bottle numbered 14. And I don't know if bottle number 14 is the, uh, you know, smoothie with all the plant extracts in it or the control. Um, and so that is really, really helpful in randomized control bio biases to remove any kind or randomized control trials to remove any kind of subconscious bias. Um, and there's other ways that um, bias can be addressed in these types of trials. So for example, uh, sticking with those quantitative measurements, um, right? If you were going to measure blood pressure, you would want one of those like digitized cuffs that do it by themselves rather than a person, you know, doing it where they're like listening with a stethoscope. Because if you are convinced that that smoothie is going to lower that person's blood pressure, you might, without knowing that you're doing it, you might read it as, you know, 110 over 70. Whereas if you were convinced that it wasn't helping, you might read it as 115 over 74. And when you're reading blood pressure, there is a little bit of, of interpretation in there. So all of those things are about making, um, making randomized control trials as, um, as rigorous as possible. So, um, you still need to combine the data from a randomized control trial. That's like the intervention, right? So I'm going to have enough information to predict this thing is going to happen. So I'm going to take these people, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this intervention and see if my prediction is correct. Um, but you still need the mechanistic studies to support that data because they explain why. And in randomized control trials, you know, sometimes with different types of measurements, you can get at some of the why, but we really need the mechanistic trials to really truly understand it. From there, there's what are called meta-analyses, and our listeners hear me talk about these all the time. This is where we pool together the data from multiple randomized control trials and look at uh, basically a much bigger data set. Um, so this is, you know, I'm going to take 10 studies in 1,000 people each, and now I've got a data set of 10,000 people. And so that is a really great way of sort of looking at a bigger sort of body of evidence and seeing if an effect still happens even with, you know, all of these different, right? Every trial is going to have some slight differences in terms of, of how they're designed, the populations. Um, and so looking at meta-analyses can help us determine whether a difference is based on how a trial was set up versus a true difference. So those, those are really important types of studies to do. And then the, the height of scientific evidence, the, the pinnacle is, is called a systematic review. And that is where you go through the meta-analyses, all the randomized control trials, you look at the, the cohort studies, and then you look at all the mechanistic studies and you go like, aha, here's what this huge body of scientific evidence um, tells us. And here, here is the explanation. So a systematic review is like a scientific paper that represents the scientific consensus when there is enough data to have that. And that is, again, something that I, I put a lot of, of stock into systematic reviews as I'm going through something because they'll talk about, here's the one paper that showed the different thing. Um, sometimes we don't know why that one paper didn't. Sometimes it's replicable and sometimes it's not. Um, so we don't know if it was some kind of error or some kind of different condition that changed the results, um, or the introduction of bias, but we're going to acknowledge that it's, that data is there and what questions that one paper that shows something different, 
um, what questions that opens up for further study. But we're going to look at this, these nine other papers. We're going to look at the meta-analyses with the data from all nine papers. We're going to look at the mechanistic data, and we're going to form this, this cohesive picture of how all of the data help to answer this question. So that's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of science. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, where, where I live is just in the world where we, d- we don't cherry pick data. We don't like interpret parts of things without others mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And I, I do think it would be helpful maybe if we could kind of like take all of that now and how do we apply it to our our view of what we might be looking into for example nutritional sciences or how Mm -hmm. do we help our listeners then kind of uh, see a bigger picture for themselves how do they take all this very complex science stuff that's happening like the man behind the curtain right (laughs) yeah oh perfect yeah So I, I think the main takeaway from sort of going through those types of studies is to understand that um, none of them by themselves is the proof. So there's no, um, there, there can be times where like one study is so um, revolutionary that it, it really changes the landscape of the field where, you know, some, you know, there's some amazing discovery that can go like, okay, now we see everything else that has been done to answer this question in a different light, that can certainly happen. Um, And it's really exciting for scientists when things like that happen. But the main take home here is that, um, you know, there's a few things that I really, I really um, bristle at. So the correlation does not equal causation. I mean, yes, true. Um, But it's used as a way of dismissing, um, epidemiological studies, um, even prospective studies, which have, you know, fairly high um, ranking in the grand scheme of scientific evidence. Um, it's it's a way of basically saying uh, that science is meaningless, and it's not. None of that science is meaningless. It's um, It needs to be paired with the mechanistic study that proves the causation, but epidemiological studies are really, really important for identifying um, at a population level the manipulation points. Um, so we're going to say at a population level, we understand that this dietary trend is linked to this disease. That doesn't mean it's the only thing linked to that disease. But then when we combine it with a mechanistic study showing, yeah, and it's linked to this disease this way, then we know that that's our intervention point. Now we can devise a randomized control trial where we try to fix that thing and see now now we can measure the magnitude of effect. Um, Things that I I really bristle at is... um, that whole conspiracy theory approach where we think that um, that one study that shows the difference must be the truth. And we're going to ignore the 90% of studies that show the other thing. Um, and it's, it really is just conspiracy theory. It's the idea that um, the one, the one voice of dissent must be the real thing. Um, but I also get really upset over dismissing that one study because it shows something different. Um, what it shows is, complexity. Um, the human body is tremendously complex. Um, and, um, and to me, that's really interesting. I want to understand why that study shows something different than the rest. So, um, 
So that's another thing to look out for. I think the other one that um, is worthwhile while mentioning here, okay, so no cherry picking, uh, no dismissing research uh, under the, the guise of correlation not equal causation when really we're just dismissing research that doesn't say what we want it to say. Um, science, science is the pursuit of truth. It's not the pursuit of backing up your opinion. Um, so if it doesn't back up your opinion, change your opinion. That's, that's what, that's the scientific method. And, um, and so the other piece is, uh, I get, um, very upset <laughs> when I see dismissal of papers because they were done in a small number of people. So I think that's the last, the last piece to the thread to kind of pull in here is that statistical power is related to the standard deviation and the magnitude of effect. So what that means is, 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 uh, so the, for example, the p-value, which um, probably a lot of people have seen, is uh, an estimation of, or a determination of the likelihood that the difference you're seeing is due to selection bias, right? So I just happened to pick all of the people with low blood pressure out of this population and put them in this group versus all the people with high blood pressure and put them in this other group and has nothing to do with the smoothie that I fed them. Um, so it's about estimating based on the data that you have, what's the likelihood that it's a true difference that you're measuring versus some weird quirk of, of selection because we're never measuring every single person. We're never giving everybody a smoothie. Um, and so, and so the, the, that measurement, the reason why it's typically felt the statistical significance is a p-value of less than 0 0.05. It means there's a 95% chance that that difference is a true, a true difference. Now, do I need a big number of people to be able to determine statistical significance? Well, not always. Depending on the measurement, depending on the homogeneity of the population that I'm measuring, if I have a very low amount of variability in my population uh, on that thing that I'm measuring, um, then I don't need a huge sample size to be able to see a difference. Or if my difference is really big, even if I have a fair bit of variability, then I'm gonna also have statistical confidence that the, the, the um, difference that I'm measuring is, is a real difference. And one of the things that scientists are, were trained to do we are trained to answer the question with as little uh, a use of resources as possible, which means as small a sample size as possible. Um, and that's because no matter what type of experiment you're doing, um, increasing the num the sample number costs money. Maybe it costs you know rodent lives. Um, maybe it costs uh, the inconvenience of a person being you know jabbed with a needle. Like there's, there's a, um, there's a humanity, humane, ethical cost, and there's a financial cost. There's more samples that need to be processed in the lab and that costs money. And so scientists, I mean, also scientists are all running all of their experiments on limited budgets. There's been funding cutbacks now since the nineties that have really, um, harmed, um, scientific research. And so, um, and so one of the things that we're always trained to do is we're trained to basically, you know, do the minimum 
um, number of experiments to have statistical significance. Um, and that that is purely because of, you know, use of, of resources. Um, and so, um, and so understanding statistical power is, um, you know, people in, in research will, will all, especially biological research where this is really super relevant. Um, you know, I took multiple courses in statistics to be able to really, you know, understand all of the different statistical analyses, but statistical power is really the most important because it's about understanding the magnitude of the effect and um, and how to measure that with confidence. And so if you have, again, if you have low variability in your in your sample, in your whatever your measurement is, or if you have a large difference between your two samples, you don't need huge a huge sample size in order to have uh, statistical confidence that that is a real difference. And so, some of these really expensive studies that are done, a lot of the diet studies where people have to go live in an institute and they have all of their meals fed to them and like a person has to watch them eat and then they're not allowed to like cheat and have any outside food and they have to go live in a metabolic chamber. These are incredibly expensive studies to conduct. And so if they're done in like 30 people, that's that's so, so much resources went into that study. Um, and so it's really important to be able to say, well, what's the statistical power? Like what, what's the p-value of this difference? And if that p-value is 0 0.001, like we know that is tremendous um, statistical significance. And, um, and we know that 30 was probably more people than we actually needed. We probably could have gotten that same interpretation of data from 20 people. And so it's, it's really important to understand that a, a huge, not every study needs to be done in 200,000 people in order to be relevant. Um, and that the thing to look for is to look at those p-values um, uh, and look at whether or not that data reaches statistical significance. So for our audience, um, the biggest things that I, I want um, I want everyone to take away from this discussion is um, understanding that um, it's if science, if a scientific study is worthy of dismissal, um, then it's a flaw that is going to get that study retracted. If that study is not being retracted because it's gone through all of its peer review, it's out there, right? There's this whole, when studies are retracted, it's often, often comes from a call from the scientific community, right? The scientific community goes, hey, that, there's something wrong with this paper, and then it's looked at again. When that's not happening, um, you know, the scientific community is really good at sort of policing itself for quality. Um, then um, don't let somebody without a science background who's like selling you kind of some kind of supplement tell you that that paper is irrelevant or that that paper is wrong. Um, it's not. If it, if it is, it'll get retracted and then we'll have a conversation. Um, and so we have all of these different ways in the sort of alternative health community to dismiss science. And I think the problem with that is then when science is really important and relevant, if we're not, we're basically training ourselves, we're training ourselves to be conspiracy theorists. We're training ourselves to dismiss science. Um, and it, it becomes the slippery slope of if you, if you can find an excuse to dismiss this paper and this paper and this paper, then it's just, it's just a, you just keep finding excuses down the line to the point where 
um, data is meaningless. And I think, you know, I know our listeners are data-driven people. Um, and so the thing that I, I really think is important is, um, is that's, that's the thing that I want to like always trigger a little red flag in the back of your head is when you see, um, when presented with conflicting evidence, if you see dismissal of that evidence and, and see people going to these, um, like go to excuses of small sample size, or that was an epidemiological or, you know, it's that observational study or a correlative study, um, you know, or taking a study out of the context of, the field of scientific research that the relevant research being happening around it. Um, you know, none of this research is happening in a vacuum. Um, and it's the, the building of scientific evidence that is important. It's not the one paper except for these occasional landmark studies. It is the field and what the research taken as a collective says to answer a question. Um, and when we can look at science in that, in that, um, with that level of respect for the effort that goes into expanding human knowledge, which is, I think, so important. And with, um, with an open mind to um, what conflicting data can actually reveal about a system, um, that's where we can be informed by the science in a way that improves our lives. And that's what science really at the end of the day is all about. The idea that the more human knowledge we have, the more our lives can be informed by it and the more we can improve our quality of life. There were so many things in what you just said that I was like, wait, I want to revisit that. That was like, <laughs> you know, um, but you were on a roll and I didn't want to stop that. Um, I think what kind of um, is interesting to me is this fine line of understanding the expense and depth that some of these studies go to with just 30 people. And then um, when we're talking about, for example, nutritional sciences, but then when we're looking at, I just want to clarify this, and I know you know this, Sarah, but I just want to clarify this. When we're looking at other studies, like trials of medication or vaccines or different kinds of things, that's where we're looking at much larger populations that, mm -hmm. um, for example, what you would probably be looking for, I'm just supposing here, I'm not the scientist with PhD, is um, different kinds of health conditions that could be triggered by some of those where not the entire population has it. That's how you identify, um, you know, side effects and risk factors and different kinds of things like that that come with it that might not necessarily happen to all people. But so when sometimes you hear people say, for example, Sarah and I both love um, King Gutter Baby, right? And so she's talking mm -hmm. about the work that she's doing and they're only doing trials on um, uh, in vitro, like in a Petri dish or on animals, how that's not representative. Or if there's a small sample set, like we still can't kind of move forward in that whole scientific process you were talking about, Sarah, versus... Um, what what we're talking about where you're looking at like lifestyle or food over 10 years it's difficult to track that many people and all the different variances so it's not like everything else that we talk about like a universal here's the easy button here's exactly what to look for and to know for I think it's a um we need to be mindful that 
this information is complex and we need to be looking at, is it a credible source? Okay, what is that source? Have we, for me personally, I look to review kind of a summary or an abstract and think to myself, okay, does this, does this seem copacetic or is this on a website that is not a .org or a .edu? (laughs) Is this, you know, Mm -hmm. different kinds of things like that, that are also triggering for me when I'm looking at a publication of quote unquote scientific review, if that makes sense. Um, I thank you so much for bringing that up because I think there's two really important things that I want to make sure is really clear. So one is, you know, I think I said that I put a lot of stock into mechanistic studies. So those tend to be like animal studies and cell culture studies. Um, there is a type of animal study that's called an intervention study, right? So that's like the randomized controlled trials we would do in humans, but we're doing it in animals. And that's done a lot in drug development and vaccine development. And that is a that has a different weight to a mechanistic study. So a mechanistic study is about understanding a, like a biochemical pathway, in which case those biochemical pathways are conserved across, you know, mammals. It's it's very much the same in a rat versus a human. And so understanding um, that pathway, a rat study can be incredibly, you know, powerful tool for understanding the pathway, but the magnitude of effect might be different in that rat versus that human. So when it comes to an intervention study, I'm giving a a dose of a drug to a bunch of rats and I'm going to go, the rats all got better and I'm going to now go give it to humans. That's where you cannot necessarily draw a straight line, um, because their metabolisms overall are different, right? So, um, So an intervention study that is done in animals is not necessarily translatable to humans. There's been plenty of examples over history of drugs that were very, very promising in their preclinical development, right? That means in cell cultures and animals that once they were given to humans, it revealed some kind of adverse effect that wasn't seen in um, animals or it didn't work, right, as, as well. And that is where the difference in our biology becomes relevant. So a mechanistic study is about understanding the biochemistry, understanding how something happens, whereas an intervention study is about measuring the magnitude of effect from this manipulation point. And when we're devising a study that way, that's that's where you do need bigger sample sizes and that's where you do need, you can't necessarily say because it worked in rats, it's going to work in humans. Um, And then specifically on the point of sample size in humans, um, you know, one of the things about, say, you know, doing these like diet studies where you have people go live in a, in a place, we're trying to understand um, a really specific question in a specific population. So if the population of that study was uh, healthy men between the age of 25 and 40, it's not necessarily going to be applicable to me. It might be, but we need the study to show that it is. So one of the things to look for in smaller studies is look for the definition of the population that's included. Um, And so, you know, sometimes that does mean we take it for a grain of, uh, with a big grain of salt before we start expanding that to the general population. Maybe it's only relevant. Maybe that thing that I measured only happens in that particular, you know, type of, you know, person, those particular characteristics. Um, So when it comes to vaccine development, one of the challenges is that, you know, we want to give, with the 
COVID vaccine, whichever one eventually turns out to be the best and safest candidate and most effective candidate, um, we want to be able to give that to the entire population. So we don't, we need to know how effective it is. So we need to know that it actually protects against infection um, or protects against severe infection. Um, but we also need to know the safety profile and we need to know the safety profile in a heterogeneous population. So a population of people with genetic differences, a population of people with different conditions. And so one of the reasons that these phase two, three clinical trials for the COVID vaccines are enrolling, you know, at least 30,000 people is because a statistical analysis has told, you know, informed that that is a minimum number required to be able to identify rare side effects like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which um, has, there have been vaccines in the past that cause um, Guillain-Barre, uh, which is an, uh, an autoimmune disease that's quite um, painful um, as a side effect, a very typically a very rare side effect of vaccine, but that is an important thing to identify. Um, it's important to identify other possible, right, rare side effects. So you need a bigger population to be able to determine if those adverse reactions are happening with this vaccine and the frequency of them. Um, but also it's important to have that heterogeneous population because say somebody with diabetes is going to have an immune system that's working differently or someone with autoimmune disease is going to have an immune system that's working differently. So having those large sample sizes for um, an intervention trial like this is about having a sample that represents the general population um, so that we can really identify uh, efficacy, right? So it needs to work and it needs to work well, um, as well as safety. And so um, that's, that's the type of study where you want a, a really big population. And it's, it's, and it's because you're trying to develop an intervention that is going to apply to a diverse population, right? It's not just people with high blood pressure who are going to get this vaccine um, whenever it's it's ready, right? So that is um, that's a really important difference, I think, to understand, um, especially in the context of you know, COVID. COVID is has become this um, this that's thing that has seeped into every aspect of our lives now. And so as we're talking about science, I think it's, it's important to, to draw a straight line between sort of respecting science and, and understanding um, the COVID vaccine development, because I also think that um, there is enough skepticism of vaccines already in our population, uh, thanks to fraudulent British scientists whose papers were retracted um, and the internet magnifying um, conspiracy theories um, that I think our audience can understand um, that this is, this is science right now that is being done methodically. Um, but I can tell you that when we, when we get to the point of um, vaccines being approved, I will be digging into all of the science in detail. And we can, we can devote an entire show when it, when it comes time um, to really going through all of that science and, and making sure that we understand it. Because unfortunately, um, we're at a point where science has been politicized and it, it shouldn't be. Thanks for diving into that. I know it was heavy, but I just, 
like as you were talking was thinking about it in a different context and mm-hmm. I think this is one of the things to kind of bring us back to the beginning is, you know, context is important. (laughs) So uh, it's very easy to cherry pick a quote that someone says and then say, but you said this and, you know, apply it to a completely different circumstances. Certainly, as we're talking about nutritional science, that's completely different than something else. And to kind of bring it back to what started the conversation to begin with, um, we're talking about not cherry picking that information and continuing to educate ourselves and continuing to learn and um, expand our understanding of what works. And just to kind of, you know, reiterate, if you hear us have a show about the potential gut benefits of corn, don't just listen to, you know, 20 minutes of uh, science of the gut microbiome and not kind of the uh, also conclusion because just like a scientific study um, sometimes these read in a certain sort of way and then when you get to the conclusion you're like wait what part did I miss earlier that got me there and and you have to go back and read if you skimmed or whatever and the same thing could happen for example on our show or on our blog or in a book if you're just reading a certain part and we do our absolute best to always be broad in terms of what we're talking about. And um, if it is, for example, um, could work for some people. And alcohol is an example that I frequently use for this because we've talked before about how red wine has shown that it has antioxidant and some potential health benefits. I liken it to the example of red wine, which has been shown to have potential antioxidant and health benefits, but only in moderation and only in some people. And so if you took a statement of red wine is good for you and you applied it to the whole population and just was like, go hog wild, all the red wine. (laughs) Red wine for breakfast. Exactly. You're not going to have those results. There is a nuance to all of this and there. Just this is how science works. We heard all the complexities of all of the different aspects from start to finish and the different kinds of trials and all that stuff. And it's not fair for us to boil that down to a soundbite or a sentence or a single quote without context of all of it. And so we appreciate your patience and understanding as we try to navigate and boil oceans sometimes on the show. Um, Our goal is to keep shows to under an hour and we're rarely able to do it because it's just impossible to cover all the things that we need to cover and all the different ways that it works and all the people that it applies to. And we want to make sure that we're not just coming out because there are people that do this that say, there's this new thing and it's great and do it. And it might not be, I know Sarah, you've referenced supplements a couple of times, but sometimes it's a lifestyle hack or sometimes it's, Mm -hmm. you know, a new product that's out or sometimes it's, you know, a way to prepare celery that removes fiber you know like, and it's not that <laughs> it's not that people have ill intention most of the time or I like to believe that people have the best of intentions to maximize the health yeah. of everyone while also making themselves a dollar but the problem is is that um that likely comes from a subset of information and not like a broad look at the broad population and we need to say for example you know this could work for these people and it has the potential for you know whatever but we're doing the studies to learn more about it and that's not as exciting (laughs) it's not you know what I mean it's not as like captivating to an audience which is why 
it's not a magic bullet. Yes. And that's, you know, unfortunately, we're at a at a point now where the prevalence of, um, uh, let's say, suboptimal health is so high that, you know, really the vast majority of people now are looking for what's the one, one easy thing that I can do? What's the thing that I can do that doesn't make me have to give up these other three things that I love, um, that will make me feel better or make me achieve this health goal. And, you know, I completely, you know, as somebody who has, has struggled with autoimmune disease symptoms, um, since my, uh, tween years, really, um, I, I resonate with that. I really wholeheartedly resonate with, I just want the one easy thing that I can do so that I don't have to give up all these other things that I love. Um, or, do this other harder thing that I don't want to do. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's really important to understand that there are predatory marketing practices, um, that are taking advantage of that. But also I don't want to say like, I think one of the things that our listeners have heard us be very careful about is calling somebody else wrong. Or, uh, as we, you know, expand conversations on, for example, the corn podcast, uh, corn is a grain. Uh, it is not a food that, um, I would have thought was healthy except for the couple of studies done in the last few years, looking at the gut microbiome made me really rethink corn. And I need to be open to this new science that's just, you know, really recent and that taken together make me go, okay, uh, corn might work for a lot of people. Let's, let's have a more nuanced conversation about corn on the podcast. Um, I don't want to say that I was wrong before. That science wasn't done. <laughs> it wasn't available data for me to consider. Um, not to mention, you know, the the deep dive that I've done into the gut microbiome and the amount of just basic science I've had to learn to really be able to understand that system has taken years um, to be able to expand my knowledge base into gut microbiome research because it is really detailed and there's a lot of Latin. Um, but I I don't want to say that somebody who say, doesn't have the knowledge base to be able to dive into the gut microbiome science, who looks at the other science about corn um, and comes to a different conclusion. I don't want to say that they're wrong. Um, I, You might even look at the gut microbiome science and still come to a different conclusion. That's why we talked about all of the ways that the corn might not work for people on that same podcast. Um, I think that, you know, at, coming back to, Stacey, what you said at the top of the show is being willing to revisit recommendations, being willing to um, have a new conversation about something is the scientific method. And it's different than being wrong before. Iterating on human knowledge is science. And when the landscape changes because enough new science is done, that that is my commitment to um, you know my listeners, my readers, is that I I will do my best. I'm doing my best to stay up to date myself and I will do my best to keep you up to date as, you know, this very young science, um, is, you know, continuing to expand our knowledge. And, and I think, you know, I, 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 I personally like to assume that other people are well-intentioned and that other people are being, authentic in their reading of the same science that I'm reading and that their knowledge base and their bias 
maybe influences how they have the conclusions that they reach. And that is, you know, in many ways, the really exciting thing about nutritional sciences is that we're in this era of this, you know, dramatic increase in our knowledge where right now different experts can read the same science and come to, you know, maybe nuanced difference, um, maybe, you know, small difference, but different conclusions. Um, and as we expand this knowledge, um, it's going to get harder to do that without dismissing science. And we're going to start um, aligning, I think, um, and coming to a consensus view. Uh, I expect I expect that to happen in our lifetime, just how quickly science is coming, that we will, you know, come to this point where we're like, no, we really, we got optimal human diet and this is, it is this. And maybe it's this for this gene and this gene, but we've got, we've got this figured out now. And, and that's, you know, the, the, um, reality is that nutritional sciences is young enough that right now we are drawing the best conclusions we can with the data we have, but there's a lot of unanswered questions that science needs to answer for us. One of the things that I thought was super fascinating was the relative newness of nutritional sciences. And my mind went back to that doesn't mean that that's when vitamins started being real or, right. you know, when the earth actually became part of the Milky Way and not, you know, the center of the universe. When we discover these things, like they've existed all along and we have no idea what we don't know. And that is why we need to keep learning and evolving. And there were people who knew that certain herbs helped certain conditions way back before we discovered vitamins, right? Like I, yep. I think about, you know, the commonality of apothecaries and herbalism in, um, for example, Shakespeare, you know what I mean? And, and different kinds of writings and, and um, history that was written, you know, long before, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, um, the information wasn't there. The only way to find the information is continue to research and do the science, which is what we're here to do for you. And so sometimes we might find something that contradicts something that we've said before. And what I love is that, Sarah, you and I are both willing to say, oh, this is new, right? Like yeah. this is, we're moving forward. Um, just like I was a vegetarian for seven years because my mom thought genuinely that that was the best thing. And then we realized not so much. And it doesn't make her a bad person or whatever it is. It's you do the best that you can with the knowledge that you have at the time. The responsibility that I feel we all need to have is to continue to learn so that that knowledge doesn't stay static. And that is where science is magic. I am nodding my head emphatically. So um, I think that is an excellent place to wrap up. Um, I hope this was helpful for our listeners. We would love to hear your follow-up questions. You can ask those on the contact forms of both of our sites or um, on the social media posts related to this podcast. Um, and we'd love to know if there's, um, I mean, there's a lot of different, I think, um, directions that this conversation can go. So if there's a specific direct direction that you would like us to explore in more detail, like just, you know, please let us know. Um, what, and two hours, almost two hours wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Um, thank you for your patience and still being here, by the there's, way. <laughs> there's like six people still listening. So for those of you that are still here again, thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we will be back again next week and we will strive to make it a shorter show because likely this show took you almost into next week. <laughs> and um, we look forward to chatting again with you soon. Thanks for listening. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. I had a dream that uh, we went to record this podcast and all my notes were the wrong notes. <laughs> You're giving it a little too much thought at night. I'm, I'm having the most random anxiety dreams these days. I had an anxiety dream the other night that I was being forced to eat a deep fried rat. Oh my God. <laughs> and not, not a gutted rat. It was like a whole, but deep fried, like Kentucky fried rat. And it, um, I had to eat it so that, like, a person wouldn't die or something. Okay. It didn't taste good either in my dream. It did not taste like the chicken. You know, I drank an entire cup of tea while we were chatting before we even started. <laughs> Do you need to go get more tea? No, I, I, I am in the habit now. I always bring two cups of tea. Wow, we I, am, I am worthy of it. Two teacup yeah. start. I get I get one in like an actual nice mug, and then I put one in a um, insulated travel mug. So I'm, but I'm on like I'm already. We haven't started yet, and I'm already onto my travel mug. So it's gonna be a good day. I'm caffeinated. And I got an eyelash in my eye. Oh, it's so annoying. And I just put moisturizer on my hands. Oh, okay. I'm good. This whole time I was muted. Oh my god, I like accidentally started the wrong show cuz I had the two the 422 and the 423 files up and I started saying 422 and then you were talking about having something in your eyelash and I was like, "What are you doing? You're interrupting me." <laughs> and then I was like, "No, I say? It was and, and you said you put silence. you said you put moisturizer on and I was like, "Don't put your hand in your eyes. You don't know what's in your moisturizer." <laughs> And this whole time I'm thinking I'm so funny and then you're not laughing. I was like, what's wrong? And then I looked down and I was on mute. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I would have I would have laughed if I'd heard it for it sure. It was good. Trust me. It yeah. was good. I was proud. <laughs> okay, let's try again. <laughs> Third time's the charm. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.